0: I just think it really comes down to that human condition that these are people, and these are people who went to elementary school and had teachers and brothers and sisters and cousins. And, you know, most of them went to high school and had friends and girlfriends and, you know, did all that stuff that teenagers do. And then somewhere along the way, you know, life got really tough and uh, that's where they are now. And so that's where they are, they're people.
1: Welcome to The Journey Here, a podcast that profiles the stories of community builders from all walks of life. I'm your host, Steve Dooley. Okay, welcome everyone. My guest today is Bailey Mumford, who is the Senior Director of Housing and Homelessness at Metis Nation BC. Welcome to the show, Bailey.
0: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
1: Oh, it's great to have you. You know, th- there's lots to unpack in your work with in Nation BC. And prior to that, the work you did with Lookout around the Surrey of modular housing, I, you know, kind of might want to start there. But before we get into any of that, yeah. tell us about Bailey the person. Where are you from? Yeah. What's your background and and how did your background kind of lead you to this work?
0: Well, you know, I I grew up in Surrey. I've i lived in Surrey since I was about ten years old. So Surrey, Surrey specifically, has always been been quite near and dear to me. I've you know I've, I've worked in there and lived there and, and grew up there. And I think my family's lived here probably since about the, the the late '50s. And so so growing growing up in Surrey, I developed a large love for the parks in Surrey. And I spent a lot, a lot of the time in the parks in Surrey. And to be honest, what I started noticing was people camping in the parks in Surrey and those types of pieces as well. And so I spent a lot of years working with people in, in different marginalized roles, which I found always led me back to people that, that, that were living in, in a homeless situation. And so, yeah, I, I lived in, in Nunavut for a couple of years running a, a children's group home there. And so I, I lived there and worked really closely with some of the, the social indigenous issues that connected there as well. Uh, and then, over time, i I, I just kind of snaked my way back into working in Surrey. I worked in on on the North Shore, and I worked in downtown Vancouver. and uh, I did some work up in the in the uh, Chilcotin Territory and different areas of BC. And then just over time, I, I just gravitated back to working uh, with people who were homeless. and then and then, like we talked about, I, I got the opportunity to work in Surrey with the with the homeless encampment that was there and and help move them indoors uh, into some of the temporary
1: modular housing. So let's unpack that a little more. You know, it's really interesting. I have a, I have one piece of art and it's, uh, by this, uh, gentleman from Victoria, uh, Jeremy Herndl. The art is a picture of, uh, of a city from, from looking through trees. So looking, looking through, I think he was in a park. So he was, he was homeless, lived in a park, Mm -hmm. kind of like what you were describing. And, uh, his view is you look through these trees and you see the, the lights of the city behind it. Mm-hmm. So so tell me a little bit more about the parks and what attracted you to that and what you saw in the parks.
0: You know, what attracted me to the parks actually was once upon a time, you know, about 20 years ago, I was a lifeguard and I worked in, in most of the pools in the outdoor parks um, across Surrey. And so and so just because of that, I mean, I just, I, I was already quite passionate about, about swimming in pools and everything else. And then I, working in the parks, I ran Bear Creek Pool Uh, for about five summers in a row. And I really learned about the culture that happens in a a park and how how you can really bring a community together. I mean, Bear Creek Park is such a great gathering place in itself. But at the same time, like I said, you know, I I was working running the pool and every once in a while I'd look out into the forest and I'd I'd see a homeless person there. I'd see something happening there and then you'd see the police come and work with them and try to connect them to the right places. And then from there, I I didn't really know where they went to, right? And um, and then over time, like, like I said, through my work, uh, I just started gravitating back towards supporting people who are marginalized that way. You know, Surrey, Surrey at one point, it was known as the uh, city of parks. And there's a reason. I mean, there's just so many great parks here. But what happens is, you know, if, if, there's, if there isn't enough services to support people who are homeless, or if there isn't enough housing to support people who are homeless, then they end up going and camping in the parks and those pieces, right? And so I think that over time, what we're seeing is, is a lot of Surrey's services really picking up. Uh, and really addressing those needs over time but you know 20 years ago it was a bit of a different beast and uh, it's definitely grown over time into something new so you're in the park and lots of people go to the parks oh yeah yeah but let's be
1: frank a lot of people will will see somebody homeless and walk by and not give them another thought yep what's your story about why you stopped and took a look and kind of found some passion there
0: You know, at Bear Creek Pool, I had a fellow and I I, I can't remember his name now, but he lived in the park and he used to come and take showers at the Mm. pool. And so I got to know him and, you know, he'd come and he'd hang out and we kind of started to take care of him a little bit. And he let us know about his life. And I I do remember he was someone who had a a, a professional job and he mentioned that uh, his mental health started to slip and I think he had a divorce. And so, you know, people... People have turns in life that sometimes they don't expect to happen, and it gets them into those situations. I found, I found work with people who were homeless that more often than not, the reason that people have ended up in that situation is because of something out of their control, and so they're there, they're there just, just working to get out of that piece, and just like the rest of us, they want to move forward in life and thrive in all the right ways, and um, they just need a little bit of extra help, and that was definitely what I learned working in that situation, and, and you know. Meeting a person who, who who is just trying to make it, and I, you know, I, I'm I'm not sure where he is now. That was probably 20 years ago. So, I hope that he's in a house and he's moving forward and doing everything now. But yeah,
1: mm-hmm. and we do hear a lot about that the housing first strategy. You got it, and I think that is sort of what you're alluding to. I guess, uh, well, tell me a little bit about your sense of the importance of housing for people who are in the park and people who are homeless. In oh, the sure. Parties.
0: Sure. It's interesting because someone said something to me once that always stuck with me. The answer to homelessness is homes. And I know that there, that there are, are, you know, a hundred other issues that, that connect to that. But the housing first principle is the idea that you can identify somebody who is very marginalized and you don't necessarily need to put them into a shelter and then into transitional housing, and then into their own housing. You, you might be able to have an outreach worker that can that can connect them straight to housing. And so you know everybody has a different path out of homelessness. And some people they do great when they go into a shelter and they connect with the with the caseworkers and the and the and the the shelter workers and everybody else. And then some people they they find that it doesn't work for them. And that's actually where you end up getting people camping in the in the parks at times. Is people that feel that they might be be better off on their own and what happens is you become more marginalized. So the more that you can connect people to housing, to a place where, where you know that you can find them, you can then go and meet them and you can talk with them and you can, you can identify what their actual needs are because everybody doesn't just need the same thing. You know, one person might need a lot of medical supports, whereas another person might just need contact to their family across the country, you know? And sometimes sometimes it's those, you know, it's creating, it's reconnecting someone back to the, to the right community. I spent a lot of time working downtown and in, on, on the North shore of Vancouver as well at the shelters. And we'd have people that would come that would come there from Surrey. And you would realize that, you know, this person's home is not Vancouver mm-hmm. and this person's home is Surrey. And, and so we, we, we'd work as hard as we could, as long as that's, that's what they wanted, but we'd work with the, with them as hard as we could to connect them back to their home community. And then all of a sudden you'd hear about how so-and-so went back to Surrey and got, got some housing there and is, connected to health supports and all the other great services that Surrey has in in place and they start to thrive and you know going back to the housing first program and the reaching home program that's exactly what that is that's a that's a federal commitment to connect directly with people that are living on the street and that are homeless and that are chronically homeless and getting them into into those housing supports that they need.
1: I've also heard some I mean there's housing and then there's housing. Yes. Uh, I've also heard some horror stories about, and I can't, I mean, I'm blocking on the name of them right now, but yeah. kind of privately run housing yeah. shelter.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I definitely there, the city of Surrey had had an issue for a while where there were a number of recovery homes that recovery homes. Sorry. Oh, that's,
1: sorry that's, that's where it is.
0: Yes. Homes, more, more in the addictions world. And so from what I've seen, what happened was recovery homes go under the, um, assisted living registry which is a really good system to help people who have mental health issues and need to live in some group living and it works quite well for people with addictions but the application process was not very stringent and because surrey had such a huge um addictions resources you had everybody trying to help people and then you had a few guys that sort of slipped in and became slumlords and tried to take advantage of that system mm-hmm. um, to the city of Surrey's credit, their bylaw officers worked very closely and, and, and very respectfully with these guys because there's the people that, that are running the houses who were quite predatory and were are looking to take advantage of, of, of some of these people with addictions. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to take into consideration those people living in those homes And Mm -hmm. so you couldn't just move, move in and say, shut it down and kick them out because you're putting people on the street. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of effort uh, to at least get those, get those people into the shelter or more, more specifically into another addictions resource where they could continue to work on, on their sobriety. So yeah, Surrey, I think has turned a bit of a corner with that from what I've seen. And Mm -hmm. a lot of the really predatory people who were running those homes I'd say they've been regulated out. Surrey did a great job of setting up um, a mechanism where you had to have a business license to Mm -hmm. operate a recovery home. And so that allowed them to have conversations with everybody who was running those homes and then sort of figure out who is on the up and up and who, who might have some different intentions on how they're taking advantage of people.
1: Yes. I I remember that. I remember hearing stories of, and I don't know how accurate it is, but you know, in a recovery house, you have a bedroom, but the bedroom is actually a closet and, so those kinds of things, and I'm glad the city of Surrey figured it out because they did have.
0: Oh, it was a the, problem. Yeah, it was it was, a, it was yeah. a real huge problem, and we would see, you know, we, we'd have people that would come into the homeless shelter, and what would happen was they they, they move into this recovery home, and they wouldn't really be sober. They wouldn't be you know, they wouldn't be prepared to go through to work to be sober, and and the house didn't have the programming that was necessary to support them. Um, however, on the first day that they move in, the people that run the house had no problem taking rent. They had no problem taking that rent, but if you relapse in that program, you're out that day. And so most of these guys, within two or three days, would relapse. And then these predatory guys that were running the program would take their rent money, kick them out, move a new guy in, take his rent money, and go through the same process. And so you know, there they, it was a very lucrative business for these guys um, to be running these to be running these buildings. And then on top of it, you know, they're 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 owning housing in Surrey. That's that's going up in value. I mean, we all know that Surrey's housing market is, is is pretty wild, and so and and these guys knew it too. And so, yeah, I mean, they they were making money hand over fist. And I think that the the city did a did a really good job of crunching down on them. You know, and mm-hmm. just, just making sure that the resources that are being offered are are on the up and up and are there for the for people's best interests, not just to turn a profit.
1: So let's fast forward to your work with Lookout on yeah. on one thirty five A and the encampment yeah. and and the modular housing, temporary modular housing, about 175 people were living in tents on 135A Street. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that uh, community, because as I understand it, it, yeah. it is,
0: is was a community. I'm glad that you start by talking about the community, because I think that's the most important part of what was happening there. So On, on 135A, there was actually about 220 people that, that were coming in and out from that tent city. And it, it was a city, it had it had a social structure and it had a support structure and it had predatory people and supportive people and people that took care of each other and people that looked out for each other. I was able to, to start working with that tent city probably about three or four months before we moved into the new modular housing, actually probably about six months. And so I was able to come there and see the pre-existing culture that already existed there. Mm-hmm. Um, And the other piece that i think is important to talk about is the front room in surrey that operated on there had been operating for 20 years and so this is a culture that had been establishing itself for a very long time there and i do think that in terms of the long-term planning having the tent city there was actually a smart move because what needed to happen was we needed to have all these people that were living in the parks i was talking about we needed to get them closer to the services to figure out how to make a large-scale plan. And, and when I say we, that, that's the city of Surrey and BC Housing, not myself. Um, but <laughs> but I, I do think that that the plan was quite well thought out for a long-term scale. It's a very hard thing to move people from one place to the other. But when I came into that tent city, I mean, it was quite fascinating because you had people with their dogs and you had people with their kids. You know, every once in a while you'd see someone's kid come and say hi to them and whatnot, which was a little bit concerning. And obviously, we we do what we could to... To address that but it was a good reminder that these people had families you know and that these people weren't just these downtrodden people living in a tent city but people with history and people with family and people with futures and I think that's probably a very important piece was that living in that tent city wasn't the end of the line living in that tent city was a way that people were coming together to highlight the need for housing in the area and to band their voices together.
1: So I have, you know, I want to, I want to talk more about, you know, what happened with the decampment, but yeah, you've brought it up a couple of times. And I think I just need to kind of dive into yeah. it right oh, now. Oh. You identify these people, you know, with families, with life experience having gone through a lot and not labeling them yes. as them. Well, exactly. And, but I, I feel like in our society, there are still so much people who will look at a homeless person and only see the homeless person and labeling them. Is it shifting? Yeah, um, is, is, are things getting better? Are there ways of connecting the business community? to? I honestly
0: know? think that they are getting better. Yeah, I, I do. Yeah. I think um, talking about the about the city of Surrey, I mean, there's some very interesting transitions that are starting to happen in the Wally area, mm-hmm. and it's going to become a very urban area quite quickly you know urban urban is in downtown Vancouver type of urban right mm-hmm. lots, of, lots of people walking around and that's going to change the dynamic of that specific area and then it's going to move out to the rest of Surrey and personally I'm I'm excited about that I remember when I was when I was in high school we'd take the bus on the 321 down to Surrey central and go shopping and hop the SkyTrain downtown and all that and so mm-hmm. I've watched that area grow in my lifetime at least For the last 20 years and it's on a constant movement towards being more urban. Back then I don't think that I would have seen a homeless person feel welcome to be sitting on the side of the road. They would have been in the bush and so by virtue of that I I do think the idea of homeless people feeling comfortable enough to be a part of the community. At one point I was able to sit in on a consultation with the city around bike lanes and whatnot and people were, were quite embracing of the idea that homeless people generally have a cart behind them and that's sort of part of their lifestyle and part of their culture. Mm -hmm. And I was really heartened that people embrace that part of it. And there was talk about, well, maybe we should widen bike lanes if these guys are doing this stuff. And so, yeah, Mm -hmm. so I do think that there is definitely more awareness around working with homeless people. I know that quite often when you end up in a a place where you're homeless, you're living in a, a pretty rough life and you may not be the most cheery person all of the time. And I think that's partly what happens with the stigma for someone who's homeless is when someone's in that place where they're struggling and where everything that they're doing all day is a fight, sometimes they can come off as not very approachable. And Mm. that's that's where I think people need to realize that it's actually the opposite. The Mm. more that you can reach out to someone and just say hi to them. I know quite often I like to comment on people like, hey, nice hat or something Mm. like that, you know, just something that's very human. Not, Mm. you know, it doesn't have to be, how are you today? Can I take you to mcdonald's and get you some food it could just be hey how you doing Mm. you know and uh no judgment just try to figure out who that person is and you know they they probably have a lot on their mind and they probably have a lot that that they're that they're they're trying to figure out and maybe those five minutes of a conversation is going to change their day and change their perspective and get them moving forward again and so I just think it really comes down to that human condition that these are people, and these are people who went to elementary school and had teachers and brothers and sisters and cousins, and you know most of them went to high school and had friends and girlfriends and you know did all that stuff that teenagers do. And then somewhere along the way, you know, life got really tough, and uh, that's where they are now. And so that's where they are. They're people.
1: So you talked about the transformation of of city center that's ongoing, and yeah. SFU is a big part of that when, you know, about 20 years ago, the the campus was built and, and we take as a university, we take great pride in that, that we helped transform the area. Mm -hmm. But in the back of my mind and in my heart, sometimes I wonder, did the transformation of city center, is it leaving people behind? And you talk about the urbanism. And I I guess my question is Mm -hmm. going forward, what can SFU do better? Because we're going to continue to expand. Yeah. What can we do better to make sure? Everyone in the community uh, is involved.
0: You know, I I think that one thing that's happening right now is as Wally urbanizes and and, and gets quite dense, people are going to move and people are going to be living in different areas. And so one thing that I definitely see is that the city is trying to not concentrate all of the the support services in one area Mm -hmm. to allow people to live, you know, because right now, if if you need those types of services, but you grew up in, uh, let's say, Port Kells, you probably aren't going to be getting the type of housing close to your family and where you grew mm. up. Not. And so over time as Surrey grows, and I, I, I live in Fleetwood, I'm calling you from, from Fleetwood right now, but you know, I mean, uh, we have the SkyTrain coming into our area. And mm. so as the SkyTrain starts moving into to Fleetwood and, and moves out to Langley, hopefully if people can work on that stuff, that's going to change the urban environment of Surrey again. And so for SFU, I think to keep a lens that homeless people will exist across all of Surrey not just in the urban environment, and and to be involved in, in supporting, you know, when there's events in those areas and, and connecting in those areas. And, you know, I, I definitely know that Surrey's bylaw officers, they cover all the different corners of Surrey and they have relationships with some really, really neat people that are living rough around around Surrey and, uh, and they're, they're working to get them connected to the right services in the right mm-hmm. areas as well. So I don't think that it's necessarily about people being left behind. That, that's something that happens mm-hmm. with urbanization, um, mm-hmm. but that's only because there's been this ongoing plan that's been happening for 20 years. You know, How do we build this area in a respectful way? Mm-hmm. It's inevitable that an area like Surrey is going to develop and get really dense. And it's, you know, it's going to turn into more people with suits walking around and that type of stuff happening and all that type of urbanization. And so with that, what needs to happen is you need to have cities like the city of Surrey that actually take care to plan where those services move to as that happens as much as I think gentrification is something that I, I would always love to slow down. It's here and it's with us and it happens. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think it's more about sort of embracing how we deal with that. And, you know, as I said, I live in Fleetwood and even now, you know, I, I, Fleetwood historically was not an area that had a lot of urban type of issues, but we're starting to see, you know, we have a few guys that are living a little bit rougher in the area or that type of stuff. And so again, I'm, I'm starting to do those conversations. Hey, how are you doing? Nice to meet you. You know, make someone feel like 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 they're welcome in the community and you know not ostracized and you know yeah. the, the only way that you can make someone feel welcome is by making them feel welcome by, by talking to them and making that effort and getting out there
1: yeah so talk about treating people with respect let's talk decantment you got it so surrey decides for many reasons to look at the tent city and develop a temporary modular housing Yep. they now have permanent module housing that they're building down on King George near yep. 64 I think it's
0: yeah there's a, I think there's and don't don't quote me on this even though we're being recorded but I think there's four buildings going up at the mo- at the moment four buildings okay. one there's probably a couple more uh, and I do know just from speaking with BC housing that there's more funding calls coming and there there's yeah. there's a lot of focus in Surrey to make sure that you know there's there's keeping up with the need
1: good. Yep. But back to that respect, uh, yep. and this is where I think I met you. And, and this is one where we met, yeah. Yeah. And one of the reasons why, you know, when we thought of our list for who we want in the podcast, you were kind of top of mind because I was so impressed with the way, you know, as you described earlier, this is the community. Yep. This this is a, a strong sense of community on 135A. Yep. And now they're being asked to, to span their community basically yep. and move into the temporary shelters. Tell us how you. How you supported that work and i know you didn't do it by yourself but no but, but I, you know
0: to- i i think i can give a good synopsis of those so we did have three buildings that opened so they, they were in three different locations all about four or five blocks from each other in the wally area and they were temporary modular housing so they were actually repurposed housing from uh, logging camps so one came from uh, slave lake i think one came from cold lake and i can't remember where the third one came from so they were definitely made to be temporary in nature but that was the idea right was it was let's make it better than living in a tent on the street and so we had 161 units between the three and then we had about 60 shelter beds there was a group of people that did not want to move into some of these buildings they wanted something different or you know they they wanted to uh, live with a larger family group or whatnot, and so so that there was still options for people to follow their own path and not necessarily just go through these pre-prescribed housing options that were given. The housing that was provided for people, so there was a kitchen in each of the uh, the buildings that served uh, meals for the people throughout the day. So the rooms were were a, a bathroom and a bedroom inside, and then they they would have I think it was lunch and dinner, and we would provide. We actually ended up getting enough donations from the community to provide breakfast as well. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of that community, not only did we have to figure out who was a good option for a good balance in each of the buildings, and, and you know who were allies with each other and who were people that looked out for each other and really helped each other. We also had to take a look at who didn't get along with each other and those types of pieces, because you know that's part of being human is that is that people just sometimes don't get along. And so I worked very, very closely with BC Housing. And so we started with a, a vulnerability assessment tool where every person in the tent city sat down for about an hour with an outreach worker or a shelter worker. And so you know that's about 250 hours worth of interviewing hmm. and then pulling that information together to really understand the needs of the different people because there were some people that the first day that they moved into that temporary modular housing, they were ready to move into something more. They just hmm. needed to figure out what it was and move forward to that. And then there were some people who, who moved in who, who struggled in that supportive environment and we were working to get them into maybe a group home or something with some extra staff supports and so there really was a range of, of who we were trying to help uh, within each of the buildings. And so um, one of the buildings, the Nancy Girard building, which was the one located on King George, King George Highway, that was the only two story building. And so we looked at people that were, were relatively uh, able-bodied for the upstairs and were relatively independent. Uh, and on the main floor, there was some really well-equipped wheelchair accessible suites. So obviously those ones were connected to the, immediately to the people that needed those supports. Um, The other two buildings didn't have the second floor, and so we did have a Fraser Health ICM team for supporting people with substance use uh, and mental health supports, and so one of the buildings, the uh, Nickerson Place, which was on 105A, that building, we wanted to connect the people that, that were using those supports into that building because there was some office space for the ICM team. And so that became a bit more of a specialized building. And then the third building, the Steve Coben building, which is the only one that's left now actually, as as there's been transitioning into these new ones, was called the the, the Steve Coben building. It's right across the street from the Chuck Bailey Rec Center. Mm -hmm. And so that building there, we realized that there was a large group of seniors you could be 45 years old and be considered a senior. But for this purpose, we, we realized that there was a lot of people that were 55 years and older. Mm-hmm. And so we tried to create that community in that building. Uh, and then we also worked on doing some, some generational housing as well. And so we connected some youth that we felt would connect really well with some older mentors into that. And so that building uh, ended up having a really interesting culture happen because of it. Because you had this group of seniors there that started taking some people under their wings. Yeah. And, uh, and moving that way and so so yeah so in terms of that culture in terms of taking people from that from on the street and then moving them indoors our first intentions were to help people with you know let, let's figure out how to cook and let's do budgeting and let's do some housing searches and then in the first week what I realized is I, I walked down the hallway and at one point somebody opened their door and they just kind of threw a bag of garbage out into the hallway and I was like, oh well, there's there's a garbage can at the end of the hallway. You can bring it there. And they went, well, when I lived in the tent city, we just throw it out, and the bylaw officers would come and pick it up. <laughs> and so I realized I was like, oh, that like that's the culture shift that we're looking at right now. Wow. Is 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 that people were living that way, and so we we have to be supportive and really understand. You know, when when you talk about supporting with someone where they're at, that's exactly what it is, right? Is <laughs> that, that that person there? And they weren't trying to be malicious. They weren't trying to be rude. They were just living their life and doing what they'd been doing their their whole time. And and so the, the next time I saw them, they put it in the garbage can at the end. And, you know, within a couple of months, they were volunteering in the community or, you know, yeah, doing all yeah. that kind of stuff and helping people out in the building and, and doing better. And so the curve is quick once you move in for a lot of people. You just need to get them that place, you know, a roof over their head and a good place to be.
1: And I remember, I think I have this right, but. You also had to think about how to support couples who wanted to be together. Yes.
0: So in the in the temporary modular housing, each of the units was for one person. And so, you know, the other thing that that sometimes will happen is when you're when you're living when you're living rough, when you're living in a place where your life is a little bit precarious, you might sort of connect with someone in a certain way for survival. And then what we found was as you came indoors that relationship might change and it might not work. And so, Hmm. um, so every person who moved in, we would get them separate rooms that would be across the hall from each other. Hmm. And that way, you know, if there was an argument or if they needed some time away from each other, they didn't lose their housing. They didn't, Hmm. there, there was no loss that way. There was always another place. Um, on the flip side, we had to be very careful because it was quite easy for people to try to sublet their rooms and make a few extra bucks on the side and everything else. In there. <laughs> and So there was a bit of a double-edged sword on that one. But you know, they're they're entrepreneurial and they're entrepreneurial. Make- yeah, they're making a few bucks on the side, so good for them, right? So yeah, um, that didn't mean we didn't have to end up
1: <laughs> Tell me about moving day, because um, because you see you see all these images of tent cities being torn down and, you know, people being dragged away. Yep. Um,
0: That didn't happen. No, no. And you know what? I think that that, to be honest, is, is a major credit to all the different services that came together on 135A to help. And so on any one day in 135A, you would see, you know, BC Housing Outreach Workers, Lookout Outreach Workers, all the different agencies from across Surrey out there working with people. You had the Surrey Outreach Team with the RCMP that was specially trained to work with with a marginalized population. You had bylaw officers, like it was, there was a lot of presence that happened there. And so with that though, became a lot of education and a lot of talk and a lot of conversations about, you know, what does this look like? There was a lot of anxiety. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of a lot of people that didn't want to leave their tent city because that was now home for them. And yeah. you know, they were worried that that this the housing was going to be jail. And I was very worried and I, I was worried that I was going to make something like that. And so I really took it to heart that when the, when people moved in and moving day was, was pretty wild. I mean we had moving trucks driving all over and BC housing had a had a multi phase um step process and you know i I think i talked to one person who figured out that in three days they did about two marathons worth of worth of a step count just walking around getting people set up so i mean it it was an organized chaos that was really interesting to watch and you know some people had trouble with having to pare down some of their items and whatnot and the level of respect with the workers of working with those people and, you know, figuring out what the best items were that, you know, that that would be coming and maybe some things that if you're living indoors, you may not need your tent anymore. Or, you know, or, or we have yeah. bedding for you and maybe maybe this old sleeping bag might be able to go and we can help yeah. move forward. So really, really interesting conversations, but really careful conversations to make sure that people weren't getting too jarred as they go through this major place. And then, you know, the first week that those places were open, I like to compare it to first year university and living mm. in residence because I did that once upon a time. And so everybody <laughs> had their own room and their own place. And so they had fun parties and they had their friends over and they were having such a great time. And then about two weeks later, it was like, I just want my home to be my home. And I I just want to have a cup of tea in the morning and turn the radio on and get my head on and go about my day. And so it was really interesting to watch how that culture went through that shock for a little bit there. And then really people started realizing what was important to them and how they wanted to do it. And so moving day was quite interesting. I think that my feet were were bruised for about two weeks afterwards or something like that (laughs) from all the walking that we did. Uh, but it was a hot day, you know, and BC Housing had uh, like spray tents for everybody to cool off and, and whatnot. And, you know, in the end, we had 161 people move into housing and we had another 60 people uh, move or, or stay into shelters and start moving forward from there. And so in the end, it, it, it was a huge success. The city was very was very respectful about the idea that this is a culture that needs to be moved and that these are people that live in Surrey. Mm -hmm. so you know these are these are people that grew up in surrey and these are people who have families in surrey and so just because you don't necessarily have a roof over your head right now doesn't mean that you're not an important part of the city
1: you know looking back is there any one thing you and the team you wish you would have done differently
0: uh you know i wish that we could have had and this isn't to say that that it wasn't done well but i think that we probably could have tripled a lot of the mental health supports Mm. that we were giving, because what you notice is when somebody moves indoors, a lot of underlying mental health issues start to surface. Mm. And, you know, when, when those coping mechanisms and those barriers that people put up start to come down, they start to let out those pieces. And so there was a lot of people that really, that really were going through a lot of, a a lot of struggles. Mm. Uh, And so, you know, the the more that we could work with the health authorities to get some really malleable and and, and I think the malleable and low, low barrier services is the name of the game. Um, mm-hmm. Low to no barriers, right? So people that are living marginalized, they jump through hurdles every day, all day. Yeah. And so if you can make it easy for them and make them feel welcome right away, that's the best way to do it. And, by, and you need to do that by having more and more people. I think that the ICM team off the top of my head had eight or 10 staff on it. Uh, mm-hmm. I usually could have seen 30. Wow yeah, working with those people. and But that's mental health across the board, right? Their mental health is a big one. And yeah, everybody yeah. everybody needs a little bit of support somewhere. Some people need a lot of supports. And we're all working to catch up and make sure that, that, that the right supports are there for everybody.
1: Okay. So um, Métis Nation BC was pretty smart by bringing you on board, Senior yeah. Director of Housing and Homelessness. Uh, and you talked earlier about your connection with uh, Indigenous communities up in Nineveh. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the work you're doing now, and and where you hope to go with it. And uh, again, yeah. any way we can support it at SFU.
0: So right now, um, yeah. So my 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 new role is I'm the senior director of housing and homelessness for Métis Nation, British Columbia. Um, off the side of my desk, I also oversee the the uh, Ministry of Sport, which is a very small, underfunded ministry. But over the next year, I'm hoping to make some big strides on that one as well. So, uh, but I'm here to talk about housing on the
1: side of your desk, running Ministry of Sport.
0: Yeah, so it's it's an unfunded ministry with one staff. And so basically right now I, I get to start it from square one and I get to see what I want to do with it and move forward and everything else. The ministry of support used to be under our health ministry and so they um, went, as I mentioned, you know, once upon a time, I opened the, the uh, Fleetwood pool and I, I, I did yeah. a bunch of recreation and whatnot. And so somebody went and looked at my my, at my resume and saw that 20 years ago, I did some sports stuff and <laughs> here I am. <laughs> but to be honest, that's going to be very interesting. I'd like to make, uh, I haven't done it yet, but I'd, I'd like to be making some partnerships with the NHL and some really high level uh, sports organizations to highlight Métis athletes across the province. So. Uh, But for housing, so uh, the Ministry of Housing and Homelessness is a relatively new ministry for Métis Nation, British Columbia. Uh, Métis Nation, British Columbia is the uh, self-declared government for Métis people across the province. And so there's seven regions across the province with 38 chartered communities. We operate uh, very similar and parallel to the, the BC government. And then below us, the chartered communities would be similar to a municipality for us. So in terms of housing, I'm responsible for everything from homelessness supports at that end of the housing continuum right up to affordable homeownership and everything in between. The start of the support actually comes federally. So the Canada Métis Housing Sub-Accord and the Canada Métis Homelessness Sub-Accords both outline a distinctions-based approach to supporting Métis people across the province. And I, I say quite often that I should get a button made that says distinctions-based approach because I think it's the bread and butter and, and, and the, the, the uh, crux of everything that I'm doing here.
1: Well, could you explain to us what that means our listeners? For sure. So a, a yes.
0: distinctions-based approach from a Métis perspective, quite often um, housing across the province is rolled out as Indigenous housing. And so Indigenous housing covers First Nations people, Métis people, and Inuit people. Because there's been such a great need with First Nations groups, most of the housing has been focused on an an Indigenous or a First Nations focus. Mm. And so the federal government has now addressed that, you know, Métis, First Nations, and Inuit are all recognized under Section 35 of the Constitution as distinct cultural groups. Hmm. And so my great privilege is to work with that to develop Métis housing across the province. Hmm. Um, Right now, I'm working on an initiative where uh, we're going to be buying property in all of our seven different regions across the province. And we're going to be uh, building housing. And we're going to be connecting a Métis cultural center service center to each of those buildings as well. Uh, And Surrey is going to be one of those places that we're doing that. In fact, Surrey is probably going to be one of the largest developments that we're looking at. So right now, um, Métis Nation is currently moving into our new office in Gateway Tower. And so Wally and, you know, Wally and and City Centre for Surrey is, is going to become the Métis Provincial Government's home and we are we're just moving into our new office and as nice as it is I'm already planning on uh, us moving out in five or six years when we have a new development of our own connected to it and so the idea of that is it's going to be quite a large a large-scale development actually actually very similar to the Veterans Village um, project in Wally but with a Métis focus and so um, I'm I'm looking at buying a piece of land right now and I'm competing with all the developers and everybody else to figure out which piece of land we're gonna we're gonna land on but uh, we want to do a large-scale development that has services i want this building to have services that cover the entire housing continuum so i would like it to have a couple of shelter beds i would like it to have transitional housing and uh, sort of that that interim housing piece but i also want there to be affordable low uh, low market rental and we're also looking at, at at an option for people to be able to to do first-time home buyers and units in the building as well quite often what happens is you have homelessness services and you have housing services and they don't always bridge each other that well. Mm-hmm. And so being able to focus specifically on, on, on the Métis housing side of things, I want to make sure that we've addressed everything in that continuum. If I can work with a Métis person who's homeless and support them through our system to a place where they are a homeowner eventually, then I think we've done our job properly. And uh, until then, there's always going to be work to do. So until we've created supports along the entire housing continuum, and then flesh those out right across the entire province, we've still got work to do. I had an interesting conversation the other day with someone who talked about how when we create Métis housing, we want to make sure that we're embracing Métis history and embracing the Métis culture and embracing the Métis past, but we also want to make sure that we're, that we're supporting Métis future. Mm. And they brought up to me, and I've been, I've been thinking about this, what does Métis housing look like 100 years from now? Mm. Or 150 years from now? Because this isn't a, you know, a five-year project. This is about a culture moving forward. Somebody even threw it to me, and this is way out there, but what does a Métis house look like on the moon? or on mm. mars and really getting into those big crazy crazy <laughs> thoughts and ideas right and so anyways i kind of put on my, my my whole elon musk hat and started thinking about what does that look like but it, <laughs> but it brought me back to this this surrey development again and the idea that we're creating a home where our legislature will, will be working from this building and well you know we're, this is going to be a center point for creating metis culture and, and metis gathering places and and all of that stuff. And it's going to help us in that cultural piece across the province. It's really exciting. I mean, I I think I've got the coolest job in the world.
1: You sound with your passion, like from the heart, you do have the coolest job in the world. Well, thank you so much, Bailey. It's been great talking to you and we'll see you soon.
0: Thanks. Take care.
1: tuning in to this episode of The Journey Here. We hope you'll join us again on our next episode for more stories of people making an impact in their community. You can find The Journey Here on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.